Um, so we spent 10 days in Israel, and um, we took a lot of pictures, just an amazing amount of pictures. And I couldn't get over the fact that I took about half these pictures with my smartphone. Now, um, for those of you that are like under a certain age, that doesn't make sense to you not to do that. But for some of us in the room, um, the telephone was like we had one phone in the kitchen, one phone for the whole house. And we also had a party line. How many of you in the room know what a party line is? You're old. You, you've been around a while. That's right. And uh, so for those of you that don't know what a party line is, you didn't have your own phone. You shared the line with somebody else. And occasionally you'd pick up the phone and there'd be somebody on it. And you'd say, oh, I'm sorry, which was really a way to get them to get off the phone so you could use the phone yourself in about, about 20 or, or 30 minutes, isn't it? So we take a lot of pictures today with our, our smartphones. We were in Israel and then coming back to New York, and we traveled with a, uh, several different people. One was Don Moan and his wife, Laura, and Don's a contemporary Christian artist. And Don takes pictures of his luggage with his phone so he can remember what his luggage looks like. And I thought, I just went to Israel with you, and you were leading our tour? You can't even find your own luggage? You know, but he was really smart about that because then if the luggage was ever lost, he said he would have a picture of it, right? Um, my girls will do this to me all the time. If they're cooking in the kitchen and let's say they're running out of olive oil and they want me to go buy Publix, so they'll take a picture of the, you know, the bottle of olive oil and they'll text me and I'll say, get this, don't get anything else but this, get this exact brand, and they'll text me. How many of you have done that to, to somebody? You text pictures. Yeah, that's way cool, isn't it, to be able to do that? Except if you're the guy that has to go buy Publix and pick up the groceries. Well, Jesus does something kind of similar to that in, in our story today. He, he wants us to, to remember. And so, again, we do all kinds of things to remember. We build a Vietnam War memorial because we want to remember our servicemen. We give out diplomas because we can't believe you graduated. And we actually want to remember this moment. Um, we, we, we have journals. We write things down. We, we take pictures. How many of you remember the Polaroid camera? Wasn't that one of the coolest things in the whole world? You push that button, that, don't ask me to do that again. And that, that piece of film comes out, you know, and it takes about 60 seconds to be able to recognize the, the image, and then you let it dry for a minute. How many of you in the room have no idea what a, you've never seen a Polaroid camera? Yeah, we're an educated group today, that's good. I tell you, that there's nothing like the old Polaroids, but we've come a long way. Jesus says, basically, I want you to remember something, and I don't want you to ever forget this. And so what Jesus does, he takes something that's very common, and he makes it extraordinary. He takes something that's very routine, and he makes it a supernatural metaphor. And so what he wants to remember is, he wants, to remember, he wants us to remember his body and his blood. Here's our verse we're going to start with. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, 24, and 25. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. Now, this is amazing. This is during the Passover Seder meal. 
This is during the Passover, and Seder means order. And there's a certain order to the bread, and there's a certain order to the cup. In fact, in just a second, we're going to read about the cup, and that's what I really want to talk about today. There were four cups. When Jesus shared this Passover meal, there were actually four different cups in this meal. And the third cup, the third cup, Jesus now applies to himself. It's the cup of salvation. This is my body, which is done for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And here's the one about the cup. After supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we're in a series called Alignment. And everybody in the room knows that the more your business is in alignment, the better your business is. The more husbands and wives are in alignment, the better the marriage is going to be. If you've got three or four kids, everybody in the room gets it. If your family's in alignment, if you're a a team, you know, the Bucks right now are not playing in alignment, okay? And this pains me, but we're not in alignment. So everybody in the room understands that the value of alignment is, is, is a tall order. It's, it's, a, it's a top priority. And, and so, so when it comes to like this Lord's Supper, most churches are not in alignment. We're, we're not in ali- alignment together. And so if you're like skeptical about church, if you're new to church, if you're like checking churches out or, or you're looking for ammunition as to why the church doesn't have its act together, this is a really good place to start. Churches are not in alignment when it comes to how to do the Lord's Supper. However, they're all in alignment as to why. Everybody gets it that we're in alignment to remember what Jesus has done for us, what he is doing for us, and what he will do for us. So, So even though we're not in alignment, in fact, if you think about this, you go to a Baptist church... And a Baptist church takes communion a certain way, right? You go to a Catholic church, and the Catholic church takes takes communion a certain way, but they're they're not the same. How many of you have taken the Lord's Supper in a Baptist church? Okay. How many of you have taken the the Eucharist in, in the Catholic church? Okay. How many of you Catholics have taken the Lord's Supper in the Baptist church? How many of you Baptists have taken communion in, in the in the Catholic church? Different, isn't it? Very, very different. Now, you throw the Lutherans in there, and they do it all together differently, right? Or you put the Episcopalians or the Pentecostals or whoever, it's all together. There's not a lot of alignment in the how we take of communion. In fact, some of those churches take communion once a quarter. Some of them take communion once a month. We take it every Sunday. Uh, some take it every, every week or every time they, they get together to meet. Some used unleavened bread. Some used crackers. Some used real wine. Some used used grape juice. Do you know that there are some churches that they all drink out of the same cup? Now, I thought about how we could boost first service attendance. In fact, first service would be full, especially right down here, the front row, because you want to be first to drink out of that cup, baby. You don't want to come to third service and drink after about 2,500 people, right? I've just grossed everybody out in the room. Sorry. 
So we're not in alignment as to how, but we're all in alignment as, as to why. Now, here's another statement I want to put on the screen. The world drinks to forget. The believer drinks to remember. I think that's original, but Danita will tell you I read things and remember things from 30 years ago that I heard somewhere else, and I can't remember that somebody else taught me that, but I can remember it. Let's put, let's put that back up there. I, I want to look at it for just a second. This, this is what the world The world drinks to forget. Now, this is not a sermon about your white wine at home, okay? Your white wine at home is safe. This is not a message about that. This is not a drinking sermon. But this is a sermon, though, about why, why does the world do this? Because the world is looking for some way to anesthetize and desensitize their pain. There is a, let's talk about the pain for just a minute. There is a lot of pain in this world. And everybody in this room, if you're not a Christian, how are you going to deal with the pain? If you're not a believer and you don't have Christ and Christ takes away your guilt, Christ takes away your shame, Christ takes away your sins, what are you going to do? And so it's no wonder that the world drinks to forget. All of us in this room, we've had things happen to us that were no fault of our own. Maybe it's mean people, maybe it's dishonest people, maybe it's foolish people, but everybody in the room, we've all had people who've said things, done things intentionally. We're in preschool, we're in elementary school, we're in high school, we're a young adult. It's our first job, and we've had people betray us and do some incredible things to us. And what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the pain when you were an innocent victim? But on the other hand, we've all in this room done things that have violated our own conscience. We've all known it was wrong. We all knew we shouldn't do it. We were warned. We were told. And we did it anyway. Not once. We did it 17 times. And and, and so what do we do with the pain and the shame and the regret within us? It's, It's no wonder that the world drinks to forget. Just, just before the trip, um, Denny and I were getting in the car together, and I had the country music station on, and um, she said, um, does, does that music, like, feed your soul? <laughs> I knew what the right answer was. I said, oh, no, honey, oh, no, I, I listen to this for sermon illustrations. I get lots of illustrations. And about that time... The song came on. I kid you not. The song came on. It's just where this guy has this great loss, great loss in his life. And he starts to sing, but I'm going to go out to the edge of this pier, and I'm going to... You listen to that heathen music, too. I heard that. <laughs> huh? I heard that. Repent before communion. And, and, and this guy's got a great loss in his life, but the solution is to go out to the edge of the pier. And this beer is just going to make this great loss all disappear in his life. Now, you think about how ludicrous that is. I I hate to admit this, but I was getting ready to go see somebody and actually go pray with them. And I caught myself humming the song of, of, of this guy who's just got jilted by his fiance and he's got two weeks in Cancun. 
Y'all know that song? And he's drinking on the plane, getting drunk on a plane, the 747 rocking. I said, all right, that's enough. Enough of that. This isn't working. This isn't working. And, and, and the world, the, that's the world's solution. The problem is you wake up. The problem is that sin, that stain, that shame, that guilt, it doesn't. Alcohol cannot remove the guilt in your life. It can't. It won't. Wasn't designed to. That never will. And so the world drinks to forget. The problem is you wake up two days later and it's still there. And the problem is now larger than life. You cannot drink away your problems. And so Christ offers the third cup, the cup of salvation. So if, if we drink to remember, what, what should we remember? Well, I want to give you some pieces today. I want to talk about what we should be remembering and how we do, do that even during communion. But before I do that, I want to mention that there's some things that maybe you don't need to remember. You see, I, I don't think you need to have all the books of the Bible always in order, all figured out. Now, that's great if you can. That's wonderful. I'm not sure that you have to remember making this like a classroom and a schoolroom where you've got to have all the covenants figured out. Now, that's wonderful if you can. It's great if you can keep the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom separated. It's great if you can keep, you know, the Assyrians and the Babylonians in 521 B.C. and 586 B. It's great if you can do all that. But that's really not going to transform and change your life. That just makes you a smarter believer, maybe a smarter sinner. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, here's what I want to challenge us with this morning. I think there's one-third, one-third, and one-third that happens during communion. I think one-third of this should be what we remember he did for us. At age 14, I became a Christian. He took away all my sins. That's awesome. I want to talk about some of that in just a minute. But I also think at the Lord's Supper, we ought to be thinking about what he wants to do in my life. And then the last third is what he's going to do forever and forever and forever. So if the world drinks to forget and we drink to remember, what are some of the things that we can be remembering as we partake of the Lord's Supper? And again, as a church, we do it every Sunday. So here's about 10 different components or pieces that I think are worthy to remember. The first one is John 3.16. Look at this. I just think everybody ought to know John 3.16. The reason I think everybody ought to know John 3.16 is because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they have this holy council together. And during this council meeting, God says to the Son, I'm going to send you down, and you're going to be a sin offering. You're going to offer your blood for the sins of mankind. For God so loved the world. I love that verse. I adore that verse. Because it doesn't say God so loved this little group of people or this little tribe of people or this little nationality, God's passionate about all the people in the world. He sends his son. I I think you should remember, number two, the humanity of Jesus. Now, give me a minute to explain this. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 tells us about Jesus' process. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. There's no question he's divine, fully, fully divine. But he's also fully human. And and I think the humanity of Christ, that little dimension, helps you and me in the real world. For instance, 
We don't read about Jesus' father, Joseph, after Jesus was about 12 years of age. So we all assume that Joseph died somewhere when Jesus was 14, 15, 16. And at that moment, Jesus took over the family business. 15, 17, 19, somewhere along the way, the oldest son took over the family business. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 talks about the half-brothers and the half-sisters. Jesus is the oldest, and now he's got to provide. They've got to eat, and they're carpenters. And they're making tables, and they're making chairs, and they're working hard. And every day, Jesus understands how to run a small business. You think Jesus can't identify with you? He's got tensions to manage. He's purchasing lumber. He's got to get the brothers to work. He's got some unruly customers. He's got splinters and calluses. Jesus can relate to you far greater than I think most of us can ever, ever recognize. The humanity of Christ. And yet, then the, next, the third one that we remember is, is his divinity. I mean, he was tempted, but he never sinned. That's amazing. After 40 days of fasting, take these stones, make them bread. Jesus said, nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Man, they live by bread alone. Well, just jump off the temple. The angels will catch you. Nope, not going to do it. You shouldn't test the Lord your God. Well, just bow down and worship me and take a shortcut, and you won't have to go through the cross and all that pain. Nope, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to worship the Lord your God and, and him only. Jesus experienced every form of temptation that you and I could ever imagine, and yet he was without sin. That's why the book of Hebrews tells us we have a great high priest who who can relate to you and to me. A fourth piece that we remember during communion is fulfilled prophecy. Zechariah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, five Seven, nine hundred years before Jesus was ever born, these Old Testament prophets predicted who who Yeshua, the Messiah, would look like. And he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. There would be a whole bunch of babies in Ramah that would be killed because a a king would try to, to kill Jesus. He would be out of Bethlehem, out of Nazareth, spend time in Egypt. All these amazing prophecies, and they were all fulfilled. And then I think we begin to think about that very last week called the Passion Week. And we begin to talk about what did Jesus do for us. Look at the next one. Jesus was betrayed for you. Judas arrived with him, a large crowd, armed with swords, clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. The betrayer had arranged a signal. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus, uh, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Amazing. He was betrayed for you. Look what else he did for you. He was on trial. The Son of God, the Savior of the world, was on trial. The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. 
You've said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's awesome. Meanwhile, Jesus then stood before the governor. and The governor asked him the same question. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, you have said so, Jesus replied. Jesus Christ went through all that for you and me. Here's another thing that we can remember. Look at this. He was mocked. Jesus was mocked. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him. What are they doing? They're playing a game. They're mocking the Son of God. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. Now, this always gets me. This, the, the spitting on somebody just gets me every time. I picture when these guys are spitting on Jesus' head, his beard, his eyes, and the spit from these soldiers are just dripping off of his chin. I picture God himself having to hold the angels back. Gabriel, you're not going. At ease. Back. Because if I were Gabriel, if I were one of those angels, I would say, Father, just give me five minutes. Five, I'll wipe them all out. Just give me five. That's what I picture in heaven. God himself holding back the legions of angels. They spit on him. They took the staff. They struck him on the head again and again. They mocked him. They took off the robe. They put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Jesus was mocked for you. And then he was crucified. Look at the next part. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene. I I walked the Via Della Rosa this past week. I can't imagine, after being scourged, I can't imagine Jesus having to walk that walk and carry his cross. It's unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. We were exhausted and we're healthy. Imagine being scourged. They met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha. I saw that too, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Not only was Jesus crucified for you, but he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean cloth, placed it in his own tomb that he cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Absolutely amazing. But then here's, here's what happens next. Look at this next picture. I actually took that picture. There were six of us from Harborside right there, and that's thought to be the tomb that Jesus came out of. No one knows for sure. It's very close to Golgotha. It's very close to the place of the skull. It was a rich man's tomb because it was actually fairly large. We went inside that tomb, and I was really surprised how large it actually is. But see, the tomb is empty. That's the point. Three days after he was buried, the tomb was empty. Because Jesus rose from the dead for you. Here's the next verses of Scripture. Look at this. 
After the Sabbath at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, and there was such a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled the, back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly. Tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead. He is risen from the dead. He is risen from the dead. You see, I think... Every time we get together and partake of the Lord's Supper, I think we remember one-third, one-third, and one-third. And it's so important for us to get a grip of why Jesus Christ took this piece of bread and took this glass of wine, and he then he applied it to himself. And that third cup, again, was called the cup of salvation. Just... Just a couple of days before our trip, um, I was up in our area, and I was at the Ridgemore Starbucks working for a couple hours by myself. And um, I hadn't seen this, this man in about six months. His name's Terry. Uh, I know him by his first name. He knows me by my first name. And he's a chef. It's actually kind of an interesting job. He's a chef, and he uh, goes into homes and will prepare meals for like four or five days for people. And they have meals to eat, and that's, that's his little business. And he's a great chef, apparently. And so I said, Terry, I haven't seen you in about six months. Where, where have you been? And he said, well, about, you know, I've been in Ohio for the last six months. Uh, my mother got sick, and I took care of her for about three and a half months, and then she died. And then after she died, uh, I had to sell the home and kind of put things together, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I just, I just, he said, how are you doing? I said, I, I'm doing great, man. I said, I'm just you know, getting ready to get my life together here, getting ready to go to Israel for about 10 days. And, and I said, you know, I said, Terry, and he knows Dean and Jonathan because Dean and Jonathan and I work up at that Ridgemore Starbucks on some Thursday mornings. And so he's seen us up there working. And I said, I didn't want to invite you to church. I don't know if you have a church. I don't know if you go anywhere, but I would love to invite you to come to our church and he said, he said, Kurt, he said, I am not into organized religion. And I said, well, I'm not either. <laughs> and he looks at me and he said, yeah, but you're the, you're the minister. I said, if, if you would come, you would see that we're not very religious, but we are passionate about Jesus Christ. We love Jesus and I say, we're a group, but we're just a church of ordinary, normal people struggling with life. But we're all, so, we're all in, I didn't use the word alignment, but we're all sold out to Jesus Christ. And I said, I said you know, I, I want to guess that in your life, he told me what church he grew up in. I said, I want to guess that you've had a bad church experience. And sure enough, he kind of begins to kind of throw up on me the bad church experience that, that he'd had. And my response to that was, I said, that's a terrible story. That's an absolute terrible story. When he was a little boy, his mom and dad went through a divorce, and they were poor and could barely have enough food to eat, clothes to wear, and the church basically asked them to leave because they went through a divorce. Now I'm, I'm, I'm back on my heels, right? And I said, Terry, the only thing I can say is, the Lord Jesus has never hurt you. The Lord Jesus loves you very, very much. 
And his response was, yeah, yeah, you, you got a point there. Maybe I'll come see you someday. He'll be here. He will be here. We'll have him here at some point someday. You see, there's, there's so much to remember when it comes to the Lord's Supper. There's so much to remember when we think about what he's done for us. And one last thing that I really want to share with you is he wants you to be a part of the team. It's not just one-third of what he's done for you. This third is what he wants to do through you. He is inviting you and me to be on his team. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is Peter preaching to the Jewish people who've crucified Christ. And Peter says, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. And the people heard this. They were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Here's the answer. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you Jews, it's for your children, and it's for all the Gentiles, for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I think when it comes to communion, I think we do the first third fairly well. I think when when you and I come to communion, we think about Jesus died for me, and Jesus was betrayed for me, and Jesus went on trial for me, and Jesus was buried for me. I think we do that fairly well. I want to challenge you, though, to think about the next third of communion, and that is the level of expectation that when you come to communion, you actually expect God. He set you free back here. I was 14 years old. He set you free when you became a Christian. What about today? How is God still at work today? And the power of his body and the power of his blood. You see, every one of us in this room, we still need deliverance, not from our sins, but from the sins that just continue to trip us up. And so when we come to communion, I think we should have a level of expectation. God's going to do something. God's up to something. He's up to something in my family. He's up to something in my company. He's up to something in my neighborhood. He's up to something in our school. God is always up to something. And, and this third is a level of expectation. So where is it that God needs to work? Is there some physical healing? Is there some emotional healing? Do you work too much or do you need to get a job? Do you talk too much or, or do you not talk enough? Are you, where are you? And God's going to speak to you because you're on his team. And so we come to the Lord's Supper and we remember what he did. Oh my gosh, what he did for me is amazing. But we also come to the Lord's Supper and say, what are you doing? How are you using my hands and my feet? How are you using my money? How are you using my skills? What what are you up to today? And how do you want to deliver me today? And that last third is forever and forever and forever we're with the Lord Jesus and ruling and reigning with him. The Revelation chapter 5 is one of the most valuable passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. One of the most 
powerful pieces. Let's go ahead and pass out communion. Would you all pass it out? Pass it out and just kind of hold on to it right now. And I want you to think about expectation. Hold the loaf and hold the cup together. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals? Who can open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll. or They couldn't even look inside of it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, strength, honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature. Then I heard every creature. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped him. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today with great expectation. We remember what you did, we remember what you've done, and we remember what the goal is for us to be on your team, to be players and servants and servers. And we honor you today, Jesus. And we come to communion today with great anticipation, with great expectation of what you're going to do in us and through us and among us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.